Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from across the front and discuss the implications of the dreadful winter storm sweeping across southern Ukraine and Russia. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom, and our teams reporting on the ground, to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 27th of November, one year and 276 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, and foreign reporter, Tim Sigsworth. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Sure. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start off with the um, well, this brutal weather uh, across Ukraine and uh, part of Europe at the moment. So President Zelensky has thanked Ukraine's soldiers and rescuers amid very, very bad winter weather conditions. In his nightly address last night, he said, I'd like to thank everyone who's working now and will continue to work tomorrow to protect us from this bad weather and to restore normal living conditions in all our Ukrainian communities as soon as possible. He says, when it's this difficult, we should all be especially grateful to those who defend our country, who carry out Ukrainian offensive operations, who are in combat positions, uh, combat posts, on duty in mobile fire groups and in all our other units that protect Ukraine, the life of our state and our independence. Now, the Interior Ministry says that more than 2,000 Ukrainian um, cities, towns and villages are without power this morning amid well sub-zero temperatures, high winds and very heavy snowstorms. Authorities in Odessa uh, have had to free over 1,600 people who are all snowed in. The Black Sea is in a very high sea state, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But there's some very dramatic um, images there of the Black Sea and the effect it's having in, in Russia. But also, sticking with Ukraine for now, Ukraine's largest private energy provider, DTEC, said today it had, uh, it had been able to restore power to only 250 settlements. And in occupied Crimea, the Russian state news agency TASS has said over half a million people are without power. Um, they say across um, Crimea and southern Russia that there are about two million people without power. 
They say roads have been flooded, power lines downed. They've reported a very small number of casualties. As of a few minutes ago, only one person killed. But that, I think that's, as ever with these sort of things, it, it, um, it's because it's so chaotic at the moment, but I'm sure that will go up. Now, hospitals, schools, um, offices all uh, closed today across that, that part of Europe, um, Crimea and into Russia as the bad weather takes a grip. We've seen wind speeds in over 90 miles an hour, according to Tatyana Lyubetskaya. She's the Russia-installed official at the Crimean Environmental Monitoring Department. Um, so that's hampering any kind of movement down south. But before that, back over the weekend, and on Saturday, there was a very, very large drone strike or drone attack on Kiev. The most severe drone attack uh, on the city since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. President Zelensky said Russia launched around 70 Shahid drones, so the Iranian-made 131-136 drones. Uh, He says Russia launched about 70 Shahids at Ukraine precisely on the eve of the Holodomor Genocide Commemoration Day. Now, Ukraine's Air Force said it had shot down 74 of 75, with more than 60 being down over Kyiv itself. Now, all I could find looking around this morning was that five injuries... No deaths, five injuries, including an 11-year-old girl. Now, I don't mean to downplay the uh, the impact of, of hurting children or, or anyone else, but that is a very efficient result for Ukraine, if, that, if these figures are, are accurate, which I think they are. And hopefully they can maintain that level of effectiveness. Now, it might be that Russia was trying to locate weak points in Kyiv's air defence network um, by just relying on Shahids. Or uh, trying to use up U- Ukrainian stocks or get Ukraine to use up their stocks of air defence missiles ahead of the anticipated winter offensives with cruise missiles. But anyway, you look at it, air defence did its job. And as long as they can be supplied and question how, how big that if is. But um, as long as they can. Did I say if? Anyway, as long as they can maintain supplies from the West and elsewhere and homegrown, then um, air defence, the air defence network at the moment seems to be lasting. Now, in a similar vein, Moscow's airports were put out of action briefly yesterday as drones likely ascribed to have come from Ukraine were launched in the most intense drone attack there on the Russian capital for a number of months. Russian air defences shot down around 24 over Moscow region, they report. One person injured in the city of Tula, that's about 120 k's due south, directly south of Moscow. This comes from Alexei Dumin, the region's governor. He said a drone hit an apartment, intercepted drone hit an apartment building. So back in Moscow, the Vunukovo and Domodedovo airports were briefly shut because of the attack. This is coming from TASS, as I say, the Russian state-run news agency. But they both uh, were back up and running fairly quickly by 6 a.m. local time. That comes from data from international flight flight trackers. So uh, that should be fairly fairly accurate. Separately, Russia's defence ministry said that two Soviet-made S-200 rockets were also fired, well, were fired by, by Ukraine. They said they were shot down over the sea of Azov, down to the south. According to local news sources, air raid sirens sounded in Crimea and road traffic was also briefly halted yesterday morning across the Kirsch Bridge. Now, that, that's probably a combination of the air attack and the extreme bad weather there, which, has, again, as I mentioned earlier on, and I think we're going to touch on a bit later. Elsewhere, parts of the occupied area, eastern area of Ukraine, were left without power. Again, or possibly not the storm this time, 
left without power following a nighttime Ukrainian strike on a thermal power plant in Donetsk. That came from a Moscow installed local official yesterday. So the storm is complicating what uh, what was otherwise a fairly intensive air campaign over the weekend. Okay, next. Geolocated footage published yesterday shows Russian forces have marginally advanced northwest of Krasnoharivka. That's about 7Ks northwest of Avdivka in the east of the Donbass. There was imagery of Russian armoured vehicles that were attacking Ukrainian positions in the northern and eastern part of Avdivka's industrial area. That's to the south of the, the main town itself or southeast of the main town itself. Those attacks achieved marginal success. Reporting there coming from the um, Institute for the Study of War. However, today Britain's MOD says that the effort around Avdivka, Russia's effort, has continued to come at a significant cost. MOD said Ukraine's estimates of Russian daily casualties have increased from around 776 in March, to, on average, I presume, to 931 this month. So defence intelligence say, although they cannot verify the methodology, taken as a total, including both killed and wounded, the figures are plausible. So Britain's MOD putting their name there to to Ukrainian reporting, which is an interesting take. They've not, I can't remember the last time they've actually come out so clearly and said that. They carry on, they say the last six weeks have likely seen some of the highest Russian casualty rates of the war so far. And those sentiments were echoed this morning by NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. So in the margins of a pre-ministerial press conference today, or earlier today, he said, we see high casualty numbers and some of the most intense fighting that we've seen throughout the whole war has actually taken place over the last weeks and couple of months. Of course, military achievements can partly be measured in square metres, but also on the losses you're able to inflict on your adversary. Of course, we would like them to liberate as much territory as possible, as quickly as possible. But even though the front line has not moved, Ukrainians have been able to inflict heavy losses on the Russian invaders. And he's absolutely right. I mean, it is partly territory, but a lot of the territorial gains and losses come from the relative strengths of both sides. So even if the lines on the map don't move very much, if you are able to take a bigger chunk out of the enemy than they do of you, you are, well, you know, I don't want to use words like winning or or that kind of stuff, but it is a more favourable position. That's how war works. Now, separately, but connected, UK defence intelligence have also said today that Russia has been forced to move anti-air defences from its Baltic enclave of Kaliningrad, to what they say backfill recent losses on the Ukraine front. This apparently follows an uptick in losses of SA-21 surface-to-air missile systems in October. So British Defence Intelligence say, as its most westerly outpost and bordered on three sides by NATO member states, Russia sees Kaliningrad as one of its most strategically sensitive regions. The fact that the Russian MOD appears willing to accept additional risk here highlights the overstretch the war has caused for some of Russia's key modern capabilities. So all I'd say to that is it also shows, blatantly, that Russia doesn't really feel threatened by NATO, which apparently was a key reason for uh, for Moscow being forced to invade Ukraine. So I ask Russian officials, who we know occasionally listen, or any Russian anyone who, who feels they're able to answer this one, why has Russia removed key defences from a critical area if you feel so threatened by big old bad old NATO answers on a postcard please and then finally inside Russia a mysterious explosion has rocked a Russian tank factory which produces engines and artillery tank engines and artillery for the war in Ukraine 
online footage, very dramatic footage. You'll see it on our website and elsewhere. Online footage shows a, a huge fireball engulfing the Chelyabinsk tractor plant in Chelyabinsk. That's a city right over near the border with Kazakhstan, basically, about 750 k's due east of Moscow. The factory is under sanctions from Ukraine and the US as an enterprise specialising in the production of diesel engines for military equipment. Ukraine so far has not commented if it's responsible, but if so, it would be the furthest attack behind the lines of the war so far. And um, for its worth, Russian officials have insisted the huge blaze was caused by a short circuit. And I'll take a breather there, David. Thank you very much, Dom. Lots of news over the weekend and this morning. So thanks so much for talking us through it. Tim Sigsworth, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's great to hear from you. You've been running the Ukraine Live blog, which, just to remind listeners, uh, The Telegraph is running almost every single day, um, updating readers with the latest news and information on the war in Ukraine. Tim, what's been on your radar this morning? Absolutely. So in diplomatic news, one of the biggest stories breaking today is is Mike Pompeo, who was Secretary of State during the Trump administration. He has said that the US will continue to back Ukraine no matter who the next president is. And in remarks reported by the Ukrainian New Voice newspaper, Mr. Pompeo insisted that Donald Trump would do the right thing and support Ukraine if he was elected. Now, of course, this follows some speculation and uncertainty about Mr. Trump's support for Ukraine. And he is, of course, the by far and away the front runner for the to be Republican nominee in, the, in next year's presidential election. And Trump has, of course, previously praised Putin's strength. And he said the war in Ukraine would end in one day if he was still president. And of course, previously, he has demanded additional funding for Ukraine be withheld until various federal agencies in the US hand over, to quote, every scrap of evidence on the Biden family's business dealings in the country, which of course is connected with Joe Biden's son Hunter, who has um, been accused of corruption by Trump and various politicians on the right in America. And of course, we have the more recent context of the deadlock in Congress, where Republicans are blocking a bill that would provide additional aid to Ukraine. Elsewhere, over in Ukraine, Ukraine's Prime Minister, Denis Shmiel, has accused Russia over the weekend of selling £800 million, or $1 billion, worth of grain that it has taken from occupied Ukrainian territories. And the Prime Minister was speaking at a grain market forum in Kyiv, and said that Russia has taken millions of tonnes of grain from the four annexed regions of eastern Ukraine. He has said, The occupiers have prepared technical means to steal and take away 12,000 tonnes of grain from the captured territories every day. But they succeeded only partially because the heroic resistance of the Ukrainians forced the enemy to retreat. Russia's robbery of Ukraine continues even now. And moving on to... A development relating to the spilling over of tensions between Ukraine's military and political leadership into the public domain in recent weeks is that an MP from Zelensky's Servant of the People Party has said Commander-in-Chief Valery Zeluzhny should be sacked. Now, Mariana Bezula is the deputy head of the Ukrainian Parliament's National Security Committee, and she has accused Zeluzhny and the army's other top brass of not drawing up proper plans for next year's fighting. She said, If the military leadership can't provide any plan for 2024, and if all their proposals for mobilisation boil down to needing more people without any proposal for changes in the military system, then this leadership's 
should step down. Now, a spokesperson for Zelensky's party has um, poured cool water on the on the statements and said that Miss Bazula is responsible for her own words. And, of course, I don't think we should take this um, to be any indication of uh, President Zelensky's position on Zeluzhny's future. And on the topic of um, those increasingly public tensions between um, Ukraine's political and military leadership... Uh, Ukraine's spy chief, Alexei Danilov, gave a revealing interview at the weekend to The Times, the British newspaper, in which he said false narratives about the so-called tensions are being spread in Ukraine by a number of newly activated Russian sleeper spies. Now, sleeper spies are, of course, agents who are sent into a country but are not immediately used for spying. The idea being that they can evade detection, infiltrate more deeply, and therefore provide better information or cause more problems later down the line. Now, Danilov said that Russia has turned to the spies because it knows it cannot win the war on the battlefield and is therefore trying to destabilize Ukraine from within by sowing dissent and trying to encourage protests and similar things to that. And he even said there are traitors within his own spy agency, which is rather a claim to make when you're a spymaster. He has said that some are left over from the Soviet-era KGB and others infiltrated the SBU during the presidency of Viktor Yanukovych between 2010 and 2014. And of course, he was much more pro-Russian than um, Ukraine's current leadership. And he cited one example saying... Ole Kalunich, a former MP and SBU station chief in Crimea, who is currently being tried for high treason by the Ukrainians. Now, today, the SBU has come out and tried to walk back some of the claims and some of the comments by Mr. Dinilov. They're saying that he's been misinterpreted and the SBU is actually able to neutralise and eradicate these networks and that they aren't perhaps as much of a threat as the interview suggested. But, of course, much of the candid remarks appear to be um, not... They haven't been fully walked back yet. So it's quite an interesting insight and one we have not really had before into the workings of the Ukrainian spy agency. Thank you so much, Tim. You're right. That story is definitely evolving. I mean, we were seeing several updates on the live blog through today, so I'm sure we'll have to pick it up in the next few days as well as as the interviewee sort of works out exactly what he what he potentially what he meant to say and what he actually said to the Times. Thank you so much, Tim, for joining us today. Um, Dom, can I come back to you? You mentioned right at the start of this podcast in the update section about this incredibly incredible bad weather uh, across the south of Ukraine and the east of Ukraine, of course, affecting Russia too, right across the the Black Sea as well. Um, you, I'd be very interested in your thoughts from a military perspective on this. What kind? How do extreme weather events like this impact military planning? What should the Ukrainians, what might the Ukrainians be thinking um, to do now, considering the terrible weather sweeping the country? Well, the first thing is that the extremely bad weather, which could be, as is here, wet, windy, snowy, but it could also be extremes of heat. But extremely bad weather generally sort of stops all movement and, and activity because, because everyone is sort of too busy trying to survive the environment rather than fight in it. I mean, the military tried to, it's ideal to survive to fight rather than fight to survive is a good old good old mantra, which is why I often find uh, uh, people training in Arctic conditions and all the rest of it, Royal Marines and working with their Norwegian colleagues and, and others, other marine forces across Europe, for example. But it, I mean, it, it is a great leveller, which obviously then is, is or could be of advantage to the side that you might consider to be either numerically or technologically weaker. Uh, 
So what I think might be happening here is it's going to be, since we're now we're nearly two years into this war, a lot of the infrastructure is quite new. I mean, the Sorovkin line of defences down the, in the south of the country have been there for quite a number of months and, we, and they're on the ground and in the ground, concrete and all the rest of it. So they're probably less likely to be badly impacted by these kind of weather events. However, a lot of the new port defences that Russia's put up around Sevastopol, for example, and Novorossiysk in Russia, and the um, the naval base on the east of uh, of Crimea, just overlooking the Kirsch Bridge, I forget the name of it, it might even be called the Kirsch Base, I can't remember, that one where they've moved, where we think they've moved some of their landing craft out of Sevastopol. You know, that, that infrastructure and the defences around it are going to be fairly new. So they might have been very susceptible to these kind of weather events. So I would imagine Ukraine would be paying particular attention, especially given their focus on, on Crimea, the, the jewel, if you like, in, in Putin's crown. And so he, he might see it, you know, if they can have a very, if they can do something militarily on Crimea, that could really shake the course of this war in a, in a fundamental way. So I would have thought they'd be putting a lot of effort now into having a look to see what damage, if any, or how the port defences and just generally the defences around Saki Airfield and what have you, also in, in Crimea, which is fairly near the coast, have been impacted, if at all, by these uh, by these weather events. Depending on the sea state, basically how, how big and wobbly the blue stuff is, the maritime drones that we've seen used to great effect, the ones that, the, that Ukraine have, have innovated with and they've, um, they've developed, that, that have had devastating effects so far, Albeit, you know, I think it's largely a numbers game with any drones. You know, you've got to use a lot to try and allow some to get through. But they have sank landing craft. And they have had effect on, on the port infrastructure. We've seen that in Novorossiysk. So I would imagine if the sea state was favourable, that there would be a greater propensity of these things now going out there and, and either having a look uh, and or trying to have a, a military effect on anything they do. They do see. I would expect if again, if the if the wind conditions are such a lot of drones to be flown to to have a look and you know, maybe not just the, uh, the the sort of kamikaze drones the attack drones but other surveillance drones and also the the big ones i'll be very interested now to see not that we ever will i'd imagine what kind of assistance ukraine gets from from the us and other external allies that have been flying all the um the drones and also the the crude surveillance as in C-R-E-W-E-D, not C-R-U-D-E, although they are pretty old, the rivet joint, but the, the unmanned and the manned aircraft that are doing all the signals intelligence around the Black Sea. Because if any of the, for example, if any of the S-3 and S-400 um, air defence systems that we know are in Crimea are, have been knocked out of action because of this weather, either the, the units themselves or or some part of the whole system, such that they can't be can't be used, because of course any a modern air defence system has got the actual kind of the launch launch site and co-located some distance away. It have the, the radar that feeds it the information, and then some distance from that, the actual control room where the people make decisions, and they are separated so that if they are hit, they, they you know, hopefully some of it survives. But you know, it all means that they've they've got to they've got to be linked together either physically linked with wires and line or or electronically all of that is very susceptible to extreme weather and if the electronic signature of these places that were the s400 for example that was that was radiating last week is suddenly offline then they might assess that that is that's that's been degraded by the weather and that might then open up an opportunity to, to get through that air defense site to go and attack something on the other side so I would imagine there's a huge amount of effort right now being put into ISR, so the Intelligence, Surveillance and Reconnaissance, 
missions to see what, if any, effect this extreme bad weather is having across the South more broadly, but on Crimea uh, in particular. But of course, that will, of course, be predicated on, like I say, whether or not the assets you want to use in the air and on the sea and under the sea potentially can operate in the environment such as it is now because I think it's still extremely bad weather today and I, I, the last report I saw was it was expected to last until at least tomorrow so they might not have been able to get any eyes on just at the moment but um, we'll have a look at the old flight tracking radar sites I would imagine. Thanks so much Tom. Just one more question on this. In your time as a serving soldier did you ever sort of encounter this, this did you ever have to live through and survive through this, this level of bad weather and if so what was that like? Um... Yeah, I suppose extremes of heat and cold, really. Not so much, uh, nothing else too bad. But um, so extremes of heat in Iraq. I mean, down south in Iraq, God, it was just horrific. Um, you know, when the temperature gets over 40 degrees, you just can't operate, basically. You can't think, you can't do anything. So just, just trying to have any any effect, just going out on patrol, uh, it's just awful patrolling in the top of a snatch wagon for example as i did numerous occasions you've just got hot air being blasted at you you just can't you're wearing body armor so you can't you're just sweating buckets it's absolutely horrific and then extremes of cold again just everything everything stops i think the when i served in bosnia which was you know quite some time ago swing the old lamp they we did record the lowest temperature in mainland europe ever recorded it was on the Tomislavgrad plane and i think there was a a battalion of soldiers from Malaysia, I think, under the it was under the UN you know, mission there, and they actually had a couple of soldiers frozen to death. I get, I may have got that right. It might not have been Malaysia. It might have been another another country. I think it was Malaysia. But anyway, the Tomislavgrad plane, the TSG plane, the temperature drops. I can't remember what it was, but it was so cold they just froze to death. So everything stops. All the oil in the in the wagons clogs up, or everything just just stops. The tracks don't work properly on the tanks. You know, if you are if you don't look after yourself and you don't wear gloves, for example, you can you go to pick up your weapon and you can freeze to the metal, which then you know you oh you rip your hand away and suddenly you've got another in, you've got an injury. So it's extremely easy to um, to become a casualty in, in extreme cold weather, and it's just it's just really unpleasant, quite frankly. I mean, if you're in a trench or if you're in a snow hole um, cold air sinks so you've then got to dig further down to have a cold sink to allow the, the, the colder air to go down there so that when you're standing or sitting in, in air that's, that's only absolutely freezing and, not, and nothing worse I mean it's just, it's just a whole nother level and that's where you need you generally need specialist troops to fight in those conditions you should expect any well trained troops of, of it and I'm, I'm talking all services here army navy air force all the rest of it they should be able to survive in extreme bad weather but in order to then fight in order to take the fight on and use it to your advantage you do generally need specialist troops to do that cause they need special equipment transport personal clothing all the rest of it and dare i say it, a mindset as well so just everything becomes extremely hard but within that of course there are opportunities if you have the right people the right training the right mindset the right equipment and the right leadership there are opportunities in there well thank you very much tom for giving us that sort of soldier's eye view there um let's move now to our final thoughts to end this episode uh, dom nichols let's stay with you blimey barely drawn breath okay so i've been looking at so over the weekend we've had in um, in lucerne in in uh, switzerland you had the lucerne dialogue which is an annual forum of um kind of future thought leaders private sector innovators and what have you uh, in europe 
retired British general Sir Richard Barons. He's he was there. It was at, like I say two days, and he was he was giving a one of the um, the keynote talks, and he made some very good points. He was talking about how the war in Ukraine is. He was saying it's a, a, basically a symptom of where the world is right now. If you look at the challenge to what we keep talking about, the rules based international order, but he says that the 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 crisis in this war in Ukraine is is a symptom of much wider issues that are shifting, the tectonic plates shifting in in international terms. And he said, I'll just read the the kind of the, the central quote. Uh, he said, right now there are Ukrainian soldiers sitting in trenches and they'll be there all winter with not enough ammunition or equipment or training. There's nothing on their shelf. There's nothing left on our shelves. We've given all the stuff that we kept in store. The only way Ukraine wins is if we now mobilise our industry and our will behind that. And then he got off, he got very sort of schoolmasterly for a moment, and uh, he started pointing his finger and he said said to the audience, "Do not tell me it's unaffordable, because you represent an economy of 15 trillion euros a year." I can feed the Ukrainian military on about 75 billion euros a year for two or three years, and I can make them win. This is not about affordability. This is about choice and competence. And isn't it a bargain if we can defeat Russia, where you only spend money, you do not spend your children? It's the bargain of the century. And I thought that was that was fairly powerful. He spoke for about 30 minutes, then took a brief, um, brief Q&A. So you'll find it online, the Lucerne Dialogue. General Sir Richard Barons, well well worth 30 minutes of your time, David. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 